Hello and welcome to The Right Idea, where we discuss the people, policy, and politics that drive Texas. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. I'm the Chief Communications Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Derek Cohen, our Vice President of Policy at TPPF. Well, Derek, no, we didn't forget about our audience last week. We, as we said at the, the last show, that we were going to be taking, we're going to be doing this every two weeks uh, because it is summer, people taking vacations. I'm sure they have a lot more to do than just sit around and wait with bated breath for our podcast. Uh, um, although there is a lot to talk about, and so we are going to be back every couple of weeks or so uh, uh, to make sure that we're covering all the major issues that are going on in Texas. Uh, as always, I like to start a little bit with a little bit of shameless plug for our newsletter. If you're not signed up, it's really getting good. We're getting a lot of really good feedback. Um, I write a column every week that's new and exclusive content for that uh, newsletter. It's called The Post, and you can sign up for that newsletter at texaspolicy.com slash the post. Uh, we recap you know, major stories from the week, some things that TBPF is commenting on and working on, and then we always end it with something a little bit of fun. We call it the postscript. It's always got some kind of historical or cultural connection to Texas. So with that, sign up for the newsletter, texaspolicy.com, The Post. Derek, it's been a couple weeks. Are you mm -hmm. still surviving the summer and getting ready for session number two? Or well, special well, session number two. I would say technically we're already in special session number two. I mean, I don't know if we're any further than uh, where we ended special session number one. As far as surviving the summer, you know, you just do what one can when it reaches uh, 104, 105 uh, every day. Um, and, yeah, I would say that, uh, yeah, well, taking a look at what we've seen thus far during this special, and we'll get more into this later, we'll – I. I don't want to say that we won't have more to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So top topics for this session or for this session, for this episode, I'd uh, just like to recap at the beginning. Maybe we'll be at a different session next episode. Who knows? <laughs> we will definitely get into the special session and what we expect to see uh, for this one and maybe even talk about the last special session if anything uh, got accomplished. Uh, there's a new poll out um, uh, from some folks that uh, that I do respect at the Texas, Policy, uh, Texas Politics Project, but more interesting is the results of some of the more controversial legislation that we've talked about a bunch on this show. Now that the dust has settled, it's been about a month or so since the session ended. They did a, a testing a bunch of the issues, and and we'll talk about those. Um, and one Texas ISD uh, is fighting back against the woke indoctrination in their schools, and so it's exciting to see that that they're not just fighting at the state level, but fighting at the local level as well. Uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, has a new border plan. Of course, Texas very interested in what the potential next president uh, would. What to do for the border, so we might discuss that a little bit. Um, and then a big shift on approving new charter schools. I know that may sound a little bit like a mundane issue, but it actually was a huge win for uh, for conservatives, for education, uh, um, for folks on the conservative side of the education issue, um, and we'll talk about why that is. All right, so as everybody wants to know, uh, well, just to actually take us through what happened, because this was kind of another deal where we were in session, then suddenly we are in a special session, that special session ended and now we're back in a special session just kind of take us through the mechanics of all of that Derek certainly I'd like to I'll start off by covering everything that was accomplished in the first special session now that that's done we can talk about the Moving second on. yeah <laughs> um, no and and so you remember you know the governor uh, after seeing uh, property tax relief failing to pass uh, during the regular session he called one for starting the next day I think it was like at 7 p.m. Uh, on the day of Sonny Die. A little uh, longer than the three hours he waited in the first special session. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the first one now. And then oh, called yeah. that. And, of course, remember, on the uh, on the actual call, he had both a very, very specific border security bill, the Stash House bill, uh, to which he even knew and basically said, passed the bill by illustrating the caption. 
and providing property tax relief. And then we remember what happened. Mm-hmm. You know, the House passed a call compliant uh, property tax relief uh, package uh, and then adjourned sine die. And then uh, that basically ignited or reignited, I should say, the war of words between the two different chambers. Because um, remember that they they disagree on three percent of uh, mm-hmm. about three percent of the package. Obviously, financially, it's more than three percent, but just meaning that they agree on so much of it. And so then, having gotten there, gotten there, we basically went that entire uh, that entire first special being played out in the media, you know, being played out via press conferences, tweet, Twitter, whatever the case mm-hmm. might be. Um, I know that negotiations were going on. I know that negotiations still are going on. I think there's a little bit of fog of war around those negotiations. And that much has actually been reported, not only by the, the relevant parties, but I think we can all see in the uh, the proof or lack of proof uh, that that's happening uh, as well. So, again, uh, Governor Abbott called a, a immediate special session again. And so we're here we are looking at property tax relief. I don't know if they're any closer. I'd like to believe uh, that they are. I do know that we've seen essentially a very similar uh, package proposed by the House, whereas now on the Senate side, they're rolling in uh, teacher pay raises, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, that's uh, I'm sure there's political opinions to be had about that. Mm-hmm. Um but that being said, is I don't know if that necessarily signals that the impasse is any closer to ending than it was the last time we spoke. You know, it's funny. Um, you know, some of the the pushback. You know, the governor's been uh, on school choice. The governor's been obviously very um, aggressive on that issue and and very specific about the the package that he's looking for maybe this fall. There's been a lot of con- uh, speculation, and frankly, he he has been fueling some of it that that there's going to be a, a school choice uh, bill this fall that will connect things like funds, public ed funds teacher pay with an ESA and that that's the package that he's looking for. And of course, the big pushback was, you know, well, why do you have to connect those two things? And the left is saying, oh, why can't we just vote on school funding and vote on teacher pay and then leave, you know, school choice and ESAs off and then separate those two issues. Now the tide has turned coming from those same folks who, you know, now they've added teacher pay to the property tax bill. Now they're saying, okay, well, this looks like a good negotiation. This looks like a deal. Uh, So suddenly they can, you know, they they see the, uh, the, um, uh, the reasons why we we might connect those two issues, of course, is because this is a negotiation. You know, the, all every issue in the Texas legislature could be voted, you know, on its own. Sometimes yeah. they put some issues that, that work together, sometimes not so well together into a package because this is a negotiation, and not everybody gets everything that they want. Well, all the well I think I, I think what you need to know about the current state of negotiations is that you basically look at who is coming out and praising the new developments and ideas, and you know, ATP. You know, they're coming out there uh, and talking about how, uh, you know, this is a, you know, the, basically praising that particular package. I was like, ooh, I'd take a second look at that yeah. if that's the case. Be careful who your friends are in some of this stuff, I <laughs> guess, uh, is, is the lesson. Um, all right. So we're just getting started. Um, but the House has already taken some votes or the Senate's already taken some votes. It's It's been within the last uh, couple of days that they've started to pass. But the but when the House voted, it did not sign a die this time. Does that show maybe that um, they're not going to box themselves in quite like they did kind of last time or maybe that things are changing? Yeah, and again, that, I mean, that's a that's a political decision. I mean, they did pass a a package that was compliant with the call, 
Um, so that, that part was correct. Now, of course, I mean, that precludes, you know, having passed that and then gaveling out. Even if that were, you know, even if there were minor call compliant edits with that particular suggestion as it came back from the Senate, that they would be unable to even address mm-hmm. those particular items. And so it was a little bit of, of, of cutting off your nose despite your face in those regards. But if we just, I would say we, if the legislature actually abided by the way things worked in previous specials, you can pre-negotiate so much of this stuff. Now, granted, I, I don't begrudge Governor Abbott by calling them back immediately to make sure they're working on this because, yeah, they can pre-negotiate this. How do you know it's even going to be resolved before, you know, in middle of 24, if, if you leave it up <laughs> to their own devices, right? So you're actually saying, no, get this done, get this done, get this done. And again, they're still, I think, I don't want to say far apart, but the negotiations are not, you know... It, it, it's not it's not to the point where we're dotting the eyes mm-hmm. quite yet. And I think that in that being the case, I think that the the negotiations as they proceed aren't necessarily in peril. I just think that they they're not proceeding as fast as they need to. One of the one of the other interesting aspects of this I'd love to get your feedback on is you know, as I've, you know, again, you've done this many more years than I have and this is only about my fourth session or so. Um and so but but I haven't seen you know, it it really is true. You know, the governor and his part in all of this. I mean, we spend so much time, you know, talking about the session and getting ready for the session and what's going to happen in the House, what's going to happen in the Senate, and then the negotiations that go on there and which bills get out of them. And it's all this process and it's, you know, it's very mm-hmm. difficult. And you get this big drama at the end of the session to see what's going to get out that almost, you know, during that time, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, you know, not a whole lot of people are worried about like what the governor's doing or, right. you know, what the governor thinks about things or, you know, on certain items. Uh, of course, he's been going around the state and, and, and really pushing uh, school choice. But I think to some people, maybe even to some legislators, they think of the governor as kind of an afterthought in the legislative right. process. And I think what he's doing now, uh, which I think everybody needs to recognize, is that the governor is not a bystander in right. the legislative process. He's not there to simply watch the process, you know, the, the sausage get made and then rubber stamp whatever comes out of the legislature. Um, a lot of people were upset about his uh, tactic of vetoing certain bills to send messages about, you know, property tax reform or about school choice reform. Um, and that was really what, you know, when I had people coming to me, you know, what's the governor doing? What's going on here? That's kind of what yeah. I would say is that, you know, this is the way the governor exerts power. This is the way the governor exerts his influence in the legislative process. It's not just the bully pulpit. He has real tools to guide legislation um, and or to or to influence and, and pressure, frankly. I mean, that's, you know, when the Senate does it to the House or vice versa, you know, we don't all, you know, clutch our pearls and say, how dare you? (laughs) You know, that's what we expect from the process. And he's part of that process. So do you think it's, is this something, you know, maybe new for Governor Abbott or is this something that we've seen before? Yeah, I know know exactly what you're talking about. The folks that are saying, oh, this is executive usurpation because he's abiding by the constitutional dictates of his office. Um, But yeah, (laughs) it's it's completely ridiculous. It's, but like, you know, I mean, there was a similar issue, uh, or I should say that uh, Governor Perry uh, is, you know, during his first session had a, a had a similar issue with a lot of folks in the legislature, you know, kind of being like, oh, the, you know, the governor wants X, the governor wants Y, the governor wants C, and them, them being like, oh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get around to it, we'll get around to it. And then the guy vetoed 89 bills, like, you get around to it now? <laughs> and I think that, dem- and then again, I mean, 
Yeah, there were some bills yeah. that Governor Abbott vetoed for for policy substantive reasons. Yeah. And I remember it was it was you or somebody else we were talking about kind of those issues. And it was like you know did some did anybody ask Governor Abbott yeah. before, while they were passing these bills? Did anybody yeah. make a call over to his uh, office and talk to his folks and say what do y'all think about this bill? Yeah, and, and and Governor Abbott's policy shop. I mean, I know many of those folks just being in and around the building for as long as as long as I have. And you know they're not you know they're not amateurs. Yeah, you know they're not amateurs. Nor is the the I would say the the nexus of policy and politics in that office uh, run by amateurs either. If there's something that's going to be, uh, you know, have a negative impact, have a negative impact on the state, then the governor is going to have an opinion on that. And if it's going to be a negative impact, probably a negative Mm -hmm. opinion. And so completely within his rights to to, to veto these, especially if you're going to have those issues where uh, an individual was, you know, say, taking a different approach to a central issue, say, property taxes, which we did see several of those bills get vetoed, mm-hmm. and basically saying, look, this particular item in the property tax debate is completely irrelevant until we get the substantive release. And that was the veto message on so many of them. And it's, you know, it's a political decision, but I'd be hard pressed to say it was the wrong one. And one other uh, thing that I've noticed- Not it, saying it's the wrong one, right. just to clarify. <laughs> just, and one of the things I've noticed, um, which which may be a positive unintended consequence, is that the it feels like, and I don't want to say this because I know everyone's head's going to explode, uh, particularly people, some people in this building, but you know, the longer this plays out, the bigger the number gets hmm. in terms of property tax relief you know the last one that i saw is now we're getting close to almost 22 billion dollars you know again the numbers can be kind of you know cut this way and cut that way in terms of what is and what is not but you know the top line number the last one i saw coming out of the senate was almost 22 billion dollars so you know at least there's that you know i know everybody doesn't like the back and forth and doesn't like to watch the sausage being made (laughs) and really doesn't like the fact that as you mentioned last time that we are heading towards a deadline which which if they don't get it done in certain time it may kick the property tax to next you know, yeah. next year, um, so that's a real concern. But at the same time, you know, it was it was twelve billion, then it was fifteen billion, then we sort of settled at eighteen billion, and now the last one I saw was almost twenty-two billion. So maybe there's a silver lining there. You know, I was about to say it's one of those issues very similar to the uh, police defunding bill from twenty-one, saying that if you are found to have defunded law enforcement in uh, you know your jurisdiction, that basically locks in the tax rate, pre- prevents the uh, government from doing X, Y, Z. And to the point where I'm like, with the, when you start taking a net balance of the competing incentives, I'm like, man, maybe we can get just a little defunding, you know? What I mean? <laughs> because because again, it's like you know, don't threaten me with a good time, you know, exactly. tax freezes and, and revenue freezes and stuff <laughs> like that. But all that all that to say, all that to say, is that this issue illustrates again you say you call it sausage making uh i i call it uh you know again refusal to take uh 90 percent of a loaf yeah um which obviously and this is where i think all parties could learn is in the legislative process you are doing really really well if you are coming out uh at the end carrying 70 percent of a loaf absolutely um i mean you know there's there's that very rare instance the unicorn instance where you come out with 100 or even 98 or something like that but more often than not you know you do have to eat a little bit of crow on your way to the finish line and you know that if 
a lot of parties involved here still had that animating mentality, I think the state would be in a lot healthier, a lot healthier place. All right. Well, speaking of percentages, um, I want to get into uh, some of the new polling that came out last week. Um, and this is from the Texas Politics Project. It's the um, the pollsters over at the University of Texas. Um, as I always say, you know, I, I go straight to the sample to make sure that before I even get into um, any of the results yet, I want to make sure that that um, that the sample is representative of the people in Texas, and by and large, they do a pretty good job. I think they probably oversample a little bit on the self-identified Democrats, but when you look at the ideolo- ideological sample, it's about where Texas should be. It's, we we do a ton of polling here at at TPPF, and so we've got a lot of research backing this up. And I think that they're fairly they can be can can be trusted. I think I think these numbers are actually pretty good, and they do mirror in some respects a lot of the the results that we have and have been validated by other polls. So just want to say that on the outset before anybody complains about, oh, well, the numbers are polls or you can't trust anything. Uh, in this case, you can't. So I want to get your feedback and reaction. No, these aren't to... the same. This isn't the same poll that showed Alan West beating Governor Abbott by 8%. This is not that okay. poll. Yeah. No, this is not the same pollsters, at least, uh, okay. that, that did that. Uh, I don't know where they are. They're, I hope they're you know cutting boxes at UPS now. <laughs> um, all right. So getting into some of these numbers, because everybody likes to, you know, likes to argue with them. One of the takeaways here is that I'm just pulling out some of the more controversial ones that we've debated. You know, um, you know, nobody, nobody was really debating over you know price transparency and healthcare, whatever. So there's some of that, but I've only pulled out the stuff that was pretty controversial. So I'll group a few of these together and then get your feedback. Um, requiring athletic participation to be based on biological sex. So men, boys have to play in boy sports. Girls have to play in girl sports. Uh, Texans support that 68 to 22. So a 46 point margin there, 68 to 22. Uh, Prohibiting sexually oriented performances in public places in the presence of a minor, so essentially the drag show bill. Support for that, 67 to 26. Uh, limiting the extent to which public school teachers can talk about gender identity or sexual orientation in classrooms. Support for that, 60 to 33. Uh, and then the biggest, contra- most controversial issue that we dealt with this year was preventing doctors from performing gender-affirming care to minors uh, is a 30-point margin at 60% support for that and only 31% uh, support for that, uh, or I'm sorry, opposition to that. That 60% mark is now even higher than the last time that we talked about it. These other ones seem higher than two. Yeah, they are. I mean, that's that's part of it. I mean, once we started, you know, once you, well, this is what we found out with the, with the gender modification debate is that, you know, it started at 42%. We saw within less than a year, it bumped up 14% to to 56%. It's now 60% in Texas. I've seen numbers closer to 70% nationally. You know, and we've made this point before, the more they talk about it and the more they argue for it and the more they have these spectacles at the state state capitol and, you know, and do these protests, the more people realize that's not what I believe. Or, Or number one, they say, oh, that's not how I thought the issue was. I thought this was really about, you know, this was about health care, as they like to say. but once, Keeping kids from harming themselves. Keeping and, kids from committing suicide, which yeah. is totally bogus, and all of that. Um, once they really start to get into the details, which is, you know, as open people's eyes to this, you're just seeing a skyrocketing uh, movement in opposition to, uh, to to gender mod. But then the other ones, too. I mean, keeping, you know, boys in boys sports and girls in girls sports or, or uh, the drag shows, you know, the sexually explicit uh, material in front of minors. I mean, all of these issues, despite the fact that... Um, 
the media, of course, and the Democrats are completely and totally dishonest about what these issues are and the way that they present them. The fact is Texans have not been persuaded and huge margins, huge uh, majorities are still on the right side. And it looks like they're becoming more dissuaded. Yeah, absolutely. The the numbers are continuing to move uh, in that direction. Um, What do you, I mean... Is this t- a complete failure by the left to try and move folks on this issue? Well, I, and you know, we have to check our own bubble on this too, because, sure. you know, we, we steep in this all day. And so when I, you know, because we've weighed in on some of these issues, we have not weighed in on others. Um, but, you know, I have to check and say, you know what, like the actual debate that we're having up at the Capitol tends to be more, you know, nuanced. For example, even the uh, the gender, uh, I don't want to use that word, I'm not going to use that. that gender the, mod. Yeah, the gender mod. Um but even with that issue, you know, there was serious discussions on the policy outcomes around, okay, well, what's the enforcement mechanism look like? Is there, like, are we starting to bring in any sort of civil remediation? You know, obviously, this is done through uh, the licensure process on the medical side. You know, there were all these like side conversations about, like, the importance of the actual policy. So I see things, you know, I'm probably too far in, you know, I'm got my, I, my head uh, this close to a tree, mm-hmm. uh, so I don't see the forest. But that being said is... It seems that the more, like you said, the more they talk about it, the more people are disinterested in that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I do think that, you know, maybe that's to the detriment of some of the, you know, more nuanced questions like, should, yeah, should this be a tort enforcement or should this be, you know, a licensure, you know, should there be criminal penalties attached, all that other mm-hmm. stuff, you know, kind of pale in comparison to where, you know, the average voter looks at this and goes, I'm just, I'm just not down with yeah, that particular just ban practice. It. Yeah. And, and that's why I bring up the sample because this is, I mean, remember, this is, this is f- only 46% self-identified yep. Republicans, 43% self-identified Democrats, and yet we're getting 67% of people are opposing the drag show or, you know, supposing drag shows with minors at them. We get 60 or, you know, 60% that are opposing uh, gender mod. And so you've got a large number of Democrats Self-identified Democrats, they yeah, two to one that are that are um, coming over to the side. I'll, I'll use it. I'll go through a couple other controversial issues: um, vouchers, educational savings accounts, whatever you want to call them. Texans support them, fifty-eight percent to twenty-seven percent opposed. Um, school library. This is the one that always boggles my mind: prohibiting school, public school libraries from containing any materials that describe, depict, or portray sexual conduct. Now. That's that's not what the bill does. No. I mean, it's very clear that it's not about prohibiting school libraries from any materials that describe, depict, or portray sexual conduct. Uh, any at any rate, that still gets fifty five percent in right. support of it. Um, it, it Clearly, that was not the issue. This was talking about sexually, very sexually explicit material, violent material uh, that was ending up in in uh, schools. The other one too that we talk about here a lot is DEI. So mm-hmm. DEI programs at state universities and prohibiting them. Uh, this one is a little bit uh, more even. We got forty nine percent support prohibiting these programs uh, and only thirty four percent in opposition. Uh, so there, even again, some of those issues that the left, you know, has gone whole hog in trying to convince people. Uh, you know, that if you support these issues that you're evil, uh, here we are, have Texans still continue to be on the right side of the issue. Yeah. And I think especially with some of these areas like like the DEI one jumps out um, because, you know, I think it's, you know, 49 to 34. <clears throat> I, I would assume that would be much there'd be a much greater gap. The problem is I don't think anybody really researches these particular issues. Mm-hmm. You know, they go, oh, no, you know, I, when I think of you know, this is the average uh, UT graduate. You know, when I think of my time at UT, I remember, you know, 
you know, going to bars, going playing a chicken poop bingo, uh, you know, doing, <laughs> doing, doing all the like, you know, you have this nostalgic view of your college days. You go, you know what? I'm just gonna. I, I had a good time there. I'm gonna trust the administration to mm-hmm. do that. And I well, you might say that the average UT student might be a little further left than the average Texan. But even so, they have this nostalgic view of what it is. And I, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust. You know, I'm gonna trust the administration. Well, the problem is the administration, that would work if the administration was somehow representative of, of Texas as a whole, or even some sort of like coherent philosophy, even if leftist, so that we could at least have that debate. The problem is, you know, the inmates running asylum, you know, this has basically been going on for as long as I've been in academia. So, you know, Mm -hmm. going over 10 years now, this has been going on and we don't see any pushback at all, mostly because there's, again, this this very vocal uh, minority that wants to see programs like this. Now, obviously, the content of the program is garbage and, you know, not really worthy of discussion. But even so, it's they're the ones who are making such a fuss about that. They're saying, if you don't have one of these programs, you're not anti-racist. And as a, as a great Dr. Kennedy has taught us all, that if you're not anti-racist, you're actually racist. <laughs> so, you know, it's like the, the fallacy, you know, if not A, then it has to be B. Right. All that applies here, too. And again, the, the alumni, especially the alumni who give to these universities, aren't making that uh, particular uh, distinction. You know, or, sorry, but, No, I was just going to finish saying the you know alumni contributors need to start taking a look at what their universities are doing there. And secondly, when we give them all of our money, you know, the taxpayer dollars, that definitely needs to be looked at. And this is in the bill that is supported by this particular polling was a good start in doing so. One of the, and talking about DEI, one of the things that was not tested is uh, people's definition of DEI. I mean, obviously DEI stands for you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, which all sound wonderful until you figure out kind of what that really means on the other side. We've tested that several times, and most people. People, at least the last time we tested it, I think it was earlier this year, maybe the end of last fall. You know, most people had a positive, even in Texas, most people had a positive uh, definition of what DEI should be about about uh, minority recruitment to universities yeah. and offering more opportunities and all of that. But I wonder now that the that the that prohibiting these programs mm-hmm. um, in this poll shows that there's a, at least a plurality support for it by a, a 15 point margin. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe people are starting to understand more what a DEI DEI program really is, and that the definitions and the folks, you know, folks like TPPF uh, who have really exposed this, Sherry Sylvester, one of our senior fellows, has been on top of this from the day one, exposing what these programs really are. Maybe that's what's having people come around. And let me put one more point on that real quick before we move on, is that this illustrates right now, if you look at, you know, the bread and circuses that are the modern university, right? It is not, you know, what's going on there is not emblematic of real life at all there was a time where you'd learn actionable skills there was a time where you'd make uh you know decent professional connections you know as a matter of course nowadays it again it's you you will study a subject matter that the applicability of that subject to your real world experience you know as attenuated you know basically on a downward line uh you know going back decades so when it, so basically again it's this it's it's not real life and so that's why when we have these heterodox fringe philosophies they can creep in and fester there because again you know it's not real life now the problem of course though is sometimes that virus escapes the lab and it ends up <laughs> you know infecting the boardrooms of certain companies and that's why we have some of the more I would say high profile. Uh, 
steppings stepping on rakes that we've had in uh, recent years. The Bud Light and Target and all that. Oh, I'm not naming names. I'm not naming. <laughs> hey, but, they don't sponsor this show, so yeah, I don't. Yeah, you know, I don't care knows, what they yeah. think. So, um, <laughs> but, but you no, know, you're but you're spot on though. It's it's once that you know infects the boardroom again, and it's, it is brought into real life. Mm. That's the problem though. But it's because we basically have you know this luxury luxury four year gap that students are well now five and six that students are taking after high school and again obviously you know we we've been saying that college isn't for all for quite some time mm-hmm. this just underlines that point um all right so get and just to prove that i'm not cherry picking all of these issues i mean the vast majority of the issues that they asked about ended up with majorities or at least pluralities uh, on the right side of the issue so i'm really not trying to cherry pick but just to demonstrate that i am not uh one of the issues probably that derek and i personally feel uh mm-hmm. on the other side of um, is raising the legal age to purchase a firearm from 18 years of age to 21 years of age huge majority for mm-hmm. that 75% say that we should raise the age only 19% in Texas I mean we're talking about Texas here um, say that uh, say that we should not raise the age um, that you know 75% does that surprise you that in Texas you know especially because you and I understand this from a constitutional perspective right. and, and all those kinds of things you would think that I could see maybe you know especially with school safety issues and, and the tragedies and the horrible um, tra- horrific tragedies around that you would expect that number to be higher right. but even now you know more than a year after Uvalde that number still at 75% does that surprise you or not yeah no that number does surprise me it does And not only because, and like, here's the thing, like, uh, you know, curb appeal, you ask that question. I get it. I get it. Kids are stupid. Kids are, I'm sorry, young adults, I should say. Well, kids are stupid and then they become young adults. And then the magic, uh, your driver's license going from vertical to horizontal uh, doesn't, doesn't ameliorate (laughs) you of all your, uh, you know, youthful proclivities, we'll say. Bad thoughts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so like, it doesn't happen overnight, but the thing is the, the same argument that gives folks the ability to purchase weapons, you know, to defend themselves at 18 is the same that allows them, you know, to both volunteer for service for the country uh, at the same age and also allows for them to, you know, be given the franchise, you know. So it's one of these issues where we make a you can say that 18 is an arbitrary distinction and I'm somewhat amenable to that particular argument. But what we can't do is say that, especially when it comes to what is a, you know, first class or, you know, first order right, which the Second Amendment is, that that there's some sort of filter that is put on that based on age. You know what? I think I think, uh, you know, 19 and 20 year olds say some really stupid stuff online, too. Mm. Should we should we censor them, you know, proactively or should we have, uh, you know, no right is unlimited. So should we have, you know, basically they have to get a speech license mm-hmm. uh, until they're 21. You know, and again, it's one of these things where it sounds ridiculous when you pose the hypothetical, but that's essentially what it is that they're saying. Right. And that's and that's the thing that's always been the most compelling to me. Maybe I need to look more into this issue. Uh, certainly. I mean, it's not an issue that TPPF necessarily jumps into, but but, you know, certainly that that this could happen, you know, in, in Texas if. If 75% of, of people are supportive of this and the right, you know, motivation gets behind it, this could really pass in Texas to so be mindful of that. But for me, the compelling point is it makes total sense to say that if someone is a child and define that, however, you're going to define that by age, someone is a child uh, and then someone is an, and then they reach a certain age and they become an adult. It makes total sense to say that maybe not all constitutional rights apply the same, that someone who's a 13 year old versus someone who's 25 year old, I totally get it. But in the context of everyone being an adult, 
whether you're 19 or 21 or 31, if you were an adult, certain you shouldn't have some adults have some constitutional rights and other adults have other constitutional rights right. uh, uh, based on their age if they're all adults. And I don't know, and I'm kind of wrapping my brain. Maybe you know, we get, you can flame me on Twitter about this if I'm wrong, but I don't I don't know of another context in which adult some adults have some constitutional rights and other adults have other constitutional rights purely based on their uh, on their age, not their behavior. Obviously, if they're a felon or whatever, but purely based on their age. Uh, and so, and to, and to me, that, you know, you could say, well, we'll just limit it to this context, but how many times has that happened? And so now you're setting a precedent that that is a legal thing, that you can do that. So now all of a sudden, what else can you limit based on someone's uh, age? You know, some adults have some rights, some adults have other rights. Which is fine if you want to, you know, do like, you know, everyone goes, oh, well, we can keep you from having a beer. Which, which, first of all, I was about to say. I mean, constitutional yeah, yeah. rights. Not, no, I know, but that's, you know what I, I mean? that's yeah, exactly that's... my point. But, but these are, <laughs> whereas, you know, the se- First, Second Amendment, those are enumerated. Right. You know, right. it's actually actually listed. Though I did, I did have a the... car or, yeah. you know, I mean, oh, there's lots of things that, yeah. you know, some people can do. I, it, did, it did give me the hypothetical in my brain of like like a 17-year-old whose mom searches their room and then a 17-year-old alleges a Fourth Amendment violation against them. <laughs> I just, I, I don't know. I just think that'd be a funny a comic strip <laughs> if uh, get an enterprising uh, artist out there. <laughs> But you're right. So there's obviously we're not talking about, you know, there's lots of contexts in which, you know, uh, people who are 21 can do things that, that, you know, 19 year olds can't Mm -hmm. do. Totally get that. We're not talking about constitutional rights in those uh, in those examples. And we are here. And so for me, at least intellectually, to get over the hump, you have to make that case. And I think, um, you know, I think the sort of when you speak to the heart, you speak to the emotion. I think that's a lot of what we get here uh, in that 75 percent. But if you really think about it, it really will open Kind of a Pandora's box, and we don't know where it would go from there if the Supreme Court were to were to uh, approve something like this uh, in terms of limiting someone's constitutional rights simply based on their age. I, so, I mean, you you highlight the seventy five percent. I I am skeptical that's a true seventy five percent of support in the legislature. It, well, I mean, that's a that's because that's going to be a lot of or uh, in the legislature. Yeah. yeah, for sure. I don't know that we have the support there in, in the legislature. Um, I actually would love to to. To see, you know, it's not my poll. Maybe we'll do this in our next poll or something. Maybe in uh, next year. But I would really like to dig down on the self-identified Republicans and conservatives and kind of figure out what the issue is uh, there for them. Um, maybe it is just emotional, and they're like, "Hey, doesn't make any sense for a 19-year-old to be able to buy a gun that can, you know, cause that much damage." And it's just that simple for them. Yep. Um, all right, one other issue on on school safety, um, which I guess is something that I personally um, have, and again, this is not a TBBF position, but uh, inc- um, requiring at least one armed security guard officer at every public school campus during school hours, and this is the guns in schools, mm-hmm. you know, putting someone someone in there, one armed security guard. Um, it seems very controversial, and there's been a lot of, you know, I've seen a lot of polls maybe that it suggests it's even 50-50. Here in Texas, in this poll, 76% of Texans registered voters in Texas said that there should be at least one armed security officer at every public school. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, is that, I want to ask you if that's a good idea, but there's some mm-hmm. issues around that, obviously funding issues and things like that and training, and that's one kind of the yeah. first things people uh, pick up. But again, same question, 76%, does that surprise you that it's that high? No, that one actually doesn't. You asked me if it was a good idea. I think I think in net, you know, all, all policy decisions are trade-offs, you know. In that, I do think it's a good idea. I think that having the, you know, again, having an armed security officer, uh, however construed, and if we look at the actual bill that uh, promulgated this, 
it gave it the flexibility that, you know, we're not just talking like, you know, you have to go to, you know, Sam's Rent-A-Cop or uh, actually start or start up a district police. Bar. You know what I mean? Right. There's many different options to, uh, to satisfy that requirement. But no, it really doesn't surprise me because it remember we talked about the general, you know, you're trying to, you know, work on the fringes to get that that talent risk of something incredibly tragic happening in school. Mm-hmm. This won't mitigate that talent risk at all. But what it will do is it will push the risk further out to the thinner part of the tail. Right. So it it'll it won't actually change the odds. Of it, but it put in a non uh, a non stats nerd way of thinking about mm-hmm. this, the odds of if one of these things that is incredibly rare were to happen, the odds of having a counter reaction that would limit the damage to one of these things happening has now increased. Yeah. And so that I think is the true accomplishment of that bill and the fact that I think. If you just ask the average person on the street, hey, would you like your uh, child protected by uh, armed security uh, versus nothing at all? I'm I'm surprised it's 76 and not higher. <laughs> um, all right. Okay. Moving on to one other final issue, which is something we've talked about a lot here, is the so-called, uh, so-called Death Star Bill. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the what they call preemption, which um, in previous sessions, the state legislature has passed bills that would allow the state, not allow the state, but ensure that the state uh, um, has final say on certain issues that if the that if the um, the local governments go too far or that the, the cities are creating this sort of patchwork of like how you're supposed to run your business, uh, it creates all kinds of inefficiencies and all kinds of confusion. People are expected to try and and, and follow the law, but if you make the laws so complex and so um, different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction that they can't, uh, you know, you're really providing a disservice to people who are just trying to earn a living and create jobs. So... Because cities and, and towns have been doing that, um, the they come in. The state has decided that look here, we're just going to have a blanket rule for like eight or nine different types of, uh, of of regulations and rules and regulations around the the state. Things dealing with agriculture and labor and and uh, natural resources and everything. And says look. The state's going to have its rules about that, and the cities can have their own ordinances, but they can't go beyond what the state has has decided. Uh, so, for example, um, you know, if you want to, um, uh, well, we'll get into that in a second. The the water break issue, <laughs> uh, but. Again, to prove that I'm not cherry picking, this is an issue that TBPF really, really has has backed, and we have supported, mm-hmm. uh, we've testified for, but uh, it just hasn't translated to the people. And um, uh, the uh, support for that bill is only 41 to 35, so it's probably the closest out of uh, any of the bills that were passed this session, any of the controversial bills. Just 41 percent saying that they support state preemption on regulations, uh, and 35 percent in opposition. Well, I mean, it's basically dealing with a, you know, pushing against a, a tidal wave of lies, uh, and it's still uh, still above water on that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things where, and I know, I want to, I want to actually ask you a question on this about, uh, and we can get to that in a second about the coordinated pushback. We'll get to that, but like the whole thing, I don't know, like if you look at the la- the, the media in the last, I'd say, week or so. This effort, you know, I, I, we can call it a water, you know, water break gate. You know, I think water gate is taken, um, <laughs> but, but but we can call it, you know, what, whatever you want to call it. And they try to say like, oh, well, you know, it's, uh, you know, 100 degrees in Texas, for, you know, for like a week, you know, and now we've basically uh, made uh, water break ordinances illegal. And of course, that's not what it does. It just says that you can't set separate things. I can tell you the labor market being what it is, try try denying 
your uh, your laborers water breaks right and see how many stay on the job because there's a lot more folks who have who will compensate better who will um, you know give you know we'll give you a half hour water break if you want you know yeah this but this is the whole point it's allowing those individuals to find the situation that works for them instead of having some woke city council try to you know that gets uh, you know a couple emails from you know I don't know the organizing league of Houston or whatever the nonsense group is, you know, beating down their door and saying this. And mm-hmm. it's, and again, it's not, not a lot of these places even had the, a lot of the ordinances that were uh, forbidden. Uh, you know, there's not a lot of proof where you can say that these were needed because these weren't regulations never existed in the first place. Right. And now they're just saying, you know, that Texas has become this burning hellscape of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of municipal, uh, wastelands when could, because they've been, uh, uh, prohibited from doing their job. Well, it is. It's a coordinated attack by the left and then their their <clears throat> their allies in the media to take a bill which is very far reaching. I mean, there's a lot of different implications. In fact, some in some ways we may not know the all the implications until it starts to well, be. We had to pass it to find out what's in it. Exactly. Uh, but but one of the one of the areas it does cover is labor. And so what the left has kind of finagled and figured out is that there are there were exactly as far as we can tell in any major city that there were exactly two or ordinances in the entire state, one in Austin and one in Dallas, that required construction workers to get a 30-minute water break every four hours or six hours or whatever it was. So there were literally two ordinances in the entire state on water breaks. Well, this bill would technically... And there was no construction going on anywhere else in the state. <laughs> right. We'll get into all the implications of their <laughs> stupid argument in just a second, but let me just set the <laughs> stage here, is that the what the left has figured out is that these ordinances, that if the state decided that, that there were to be no water breaks, uh, it could do that and it could preempt these bills. Or if it wanted to say, well, you get a 10-minute water break every eight hours since that would be sort of the ceiling that the state would would apply, that the locals couldn't go beyond that in the case of water breaks. Um, Well, they have blown this completely up uh, into becoming this, and they've literally just lied and outright lied and says that this bill bans water breaks. Of course, it doesn't ban water breaks. Any company, construction company or otherwise, it can make whatever rules it wants about water breaks. And of course, most industries typically don't have an interest in killing their employees right. or having them die on the job. And so, of course, this is this is sort of a, a you know, this is a, a non-problem in, in most places, which is why you only have two cities in the entire state of Texas that had these ordinances um, um, because the vast majority, I would say, every single construction, you know, industry or company or whoever obviously wants to make sure that their, that their employees and stay say in Dallas, in Austin, show me the firms that aren't in compliance. Show me the firms that aren't in compliance with this. And these articles, so then this gets back to the conspiracy, which is that all of a sudden you start to see a flood. Once the governor signs the bill, you get this flood of stories coming out of nowhere um, about the water breaks, right? And so now you've got the Texas Tribune and the New York Times wrote a story uh, this week, as a matter of fact. You've got the Dallas Morning News and the Houston Chronicle have written editorials about this. You've got local uh, television going out and writing pieces about this. And of course, none of them, none of them actually do what you ask, which is where Where's the company? Where's the people who have a policy of no water breaks? You know, where, <clears throat> you know, where are the people in these other cities with no ordinances? Where, where are the instances of them, you know, dying or getting, um, uh, or, you know, or getting ill because of because of you know poor on the job policies? They, they don't. They, I think the New York Times listed one that happened in Dallas that prompted their review for the ordinance. But literally, it was one. And again, it was tragic if it happened the way it happened. The sources not or the 
story's not sourced at all. And so um, there are still some questions about the actual details. But nevertheless, let's assume that's true. One time it's happened, and yet they're making this claim like it's, you know, like it's a pandemic of, of people dying on the job because they're not getting enough water. This is simply just a coordinated attack against this bill. Now, why are they pursuing this coordinated attack? Well, it's because this bill undermines uh, the very transparent agenda that the far radical left have in in using local ordinances and local regulations to undermine conservative policy. And so if you look at other, uh, in, in other areas, particularly those in climate change, you have places like San Antonio that are trying to outlaw gas-powered vehicles. Or you have, um, you have places like Austin, which are trying to undermine uh, minimum wage laws in order to get around those things. And so, uh, and, and Texas generally has taken a rifle shot approach at, at stopping them, but because they keep popping up in different ways, this was just sort of the, the Death Star approach, as, as so to speak, uh, to say, look, we're going to stop all of this. Texas is a conservative state. We're going to be governed as a conservative state, and we're not going to allow these rogue uh, city councils and others uh, to undermine our, our conservative state policies. And it, it would be a different discussion if, like, all the potholes were filled and all the, you know, <laughs> all the sidewalks were mended and all, everything worked. Everything was, you know, this no homeless to, problem. Maybe, maybe yeah, look at that crime. Yeah, exactly. But you know what? This is the again. This is what they choose to focus on, as opposed to the actual responsibility. And I'm not going to say, you know, other things that they've made their responsibilities. Their actual enumerated responsibilities of running a city, mm-hmm. which they've abdicated on on so many times. All right. So that's a lot on the poll. That probably took the whole show. I did want to get to uh, your thoughts on a couple of things and wanted to highlight. Um, one is uh, Keller ISD, which has been one of the more outspoken ISDs, uh, recently mm-hmm. voted um, to, um, well, this is the way the story reports it. Transgender students could have their access to certain bathrooms restricted under a new policy approved by the Keller School Board uh, this week. Trustees voted five to zero. So it was uh, with one abstention. So no no opposition to it um, to establish rules rules stating that district employees shall not promote, encourage, or require the use of pronouns that are inconsistent with the student or other person's biological sex. So here we have people saying boys should go to boys' restrooms, girls should go to girls' restrooms, and that teachers um, don't have to um, follow this transgender ideology nonsense, um, and and they certainly shouldn't be able to get fired or get in trouble just because they're not using the so-called preferred pronouns. Right. Um, Keller's been outspoken on this, they've been controversial in this, but one reason, one reason I want to highlight is because this shows where, in areas where Texans are continuing to fight this mm-hmm. woke nonsense. We've talked a lot about how the state legislature did it, um, uh, but also, you know, once I think Keller ID, Keller ISD stands up, they take all of the slings and arrows and realize that they don't have to back down. Hopefully, maybe this will mm-hmm. this will uh, uh, encourage other ISDs and parents groups and others in their right. communities to stand up and fight this fight. Yeah, and I think that you know, before my my previous argument gets used against me. I go, why is Keller doing this? You know, is is everything going well in the school? You know, is everyone reading at grade level? <laughs> you know, to be fair though, they have thirty four thousand students, and their their you know their average um, you know campus rating is a B. You know, and they are outperforming the state, or I'm sorry, the state average in uh, across the board on like mm-hmm. uh, on educational outcomes. So it's one of these things where again. They're attending to the blocking and tackling, and if they wish to, to do this stuff as well, and obviously we find a salutary from a from a policy perspective, then then they can then they can do this. But it also shows, and much like you mentioned, that I think people are getting to a point where the indoctrination stuff is done. 
Mm-hmm. We are done with this. Now, granted, that's a, a more conservative area of the state. But that being said is, you know, Tarrant County is not exactly, you know, out in the, you know, out in the sticks. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a, you know, it is a big county. Major and so population area for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so the fact that even, you know, like I said, 34,000, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't make it one of the biggest, uh, definitely. But that is still a significantly sized school district. You know, it's not, you know, Earl and uh, three of his buddies on school board deciding this, you know, for a, for a district of 900. This is a sizable mm-hmm. uh, district. And so I think that this illustrates that not only is it re- there, there's reception for this, these, these ideas. When I mean these ideas, I mean fighting the, the, you know, the woke nonsense. And hopefully what I would love to see is if they not only, you know, had these particular policies going, but then double down on, okay, now that that's out of the way, let's get to the achievement issue. What can we do to address? And again, they're doing better than most. Yeah. They're doing better than most. That is exactly the point I was going to make to you is I would push back and say, this is a way to get back to the academic stuff, to get these issues Stop chasing shiny things. Exactly. To get these issues, you know, this is the stuff that comes before the school board and they're saying, enough, I'm spending too much time on this. And and obviously the left is pushing areas like this as a way to distract from all these issues or as a way to, you know, indoctrinate or or to get these issues, you know, to get eyeballs on these issues. And they're saying, we're not doing this anymore. We're Pat, you know, we're done. We're going to now, we've moved on from this issue. Don't bring this to the board anymore. We're going to get back to what we need to be doing, which is how do we improve uh, academic achievement? So yes. uh, I think that's a really, really good point. Uh, the last thing I wanted to kind of chat about, <clears throat> or two quick things, is um, Governor DeSantis has outlined his border proposal. Um, I highlight that. We don't have to get into necessarily the specifics of it. Really just want to talk about, you know, the Governor DeSantis has only been in the race now for about a month. I mean, I guess you can say he's been in it for all year because everyone's mm. assuming he's going to get in it. But let's mm-hmm. say officially he's only been in it for about a month or so. And one of his very first things, if not his very first thing, is to say we're going to secure the border. What does that say about the direction of where you think the uh, presidential debate is going to go and that issue uh, being so front and center from the very early from the very early uh, onset of the presidential campaign? Well, I, I think that, you know, Governor Sanders is correct in highlighting the need. Uh, I, I do think it'll be interesting because if you look at, you know, if we're just, again, ascribed to the, uh, you know, Trump-DeSantis uh, dichotomy, uh, at least in, in terms of the GOP primary, you know, it's going to be interesting because Governor DeSantis is kind of running the 2016 campaign that Trump ran in, in this in this policy area, mm-hmm. right, in this particular policy area, and in doing so, I think that the natural question that's going to get elevated is, well, you know, one of these individuals had an entire term by which to to address that. Now, I'm also, you know, I've been around, especially on federal policy, I've been around long enough to know that even the most hard charging uh, president um, is unable to do a uh, a, a lot uh, simply on his own. And that's not to uh, endorse or to denigrate either of the candidates. But what I'm saying is, you know, a lot of that campaign rhetoric has been done before. So the question is not only, you know, well, if, you know, if you're if you're calling in a, uh, calling into question Trump's record, I would say that it puts also put its weight on DeSantis is how are you going to be able to do this mm-hmm. when and not just Trump, but other conservatives and even other people that said they'd fix the border, however construed. It, it never seems to happen. So what is different about you yeah. is a question that then needs to be asked. That being said, though, 
the reason people keep going here is because that's how messed up this particular policy yeah. issue is. And that's why, you know, it's it's a very fertile ground. It's going to bear a lot of fruit. I just think that everyone who thinks that pointing to it one way or the other is going to be, you know, redound to the benefit of one particular candidate. Mm-hmm. I think that remains to be seen. And there are, from a policy perspective, there are a couple of differences in terms of, um, or, or a couple of new things, or maybe the, the governor's being more aggressive on certain things, like uh, designating the cartels as terrorist organizations yeah. and those kinds of things. But, I mean, it is pretty boilerplate Republican conservative stuff, which is a lot of what uh, Trump implemented. So there's not a whole lot of difference, really, uh, in, yeah. in the plans. There are some things that he highlights uh, yeah. more than, than Trump did. But on the political side, look, you and I are policy guys. We love when you know the, these guys come out with these policy proposals and love to dig through them. But the vast majority of the country does not. And what they see... <laughs> I refuse to believe that. What what they see, uh, you know, in the in the presidential primary is you know is Trump getting attacked. Trump getting attacked by the media. Trump getting indicted. I mean, he's going to be in the news constantly oh, yeah. because of all those reasons. I'm going to guess. I haven't done the Google search, but I'm going to guess there weren't quite as many mentions of Governor DeSantis's new border policy plan uh, as there were of Trump. You know, and and all of uh, and all of the things going on with him, which redounds to the benefit of Trump. I mean, that's part of the reason why he had such a hard uh, floor last time and why he ended up winning the nomination is because there was so much left-wing media attack and attention uh, on him. He drives uh, him crazy. Yeah, drives him crazy. And, and his, you always see his numbers bump. I mean, I haven't looked at the ones recently uh, since the, the newest uh, uh, flurry of, of, uh, of attention, but um, my guess is that it's still on the way up. All right, I wanted to hit, we definitely have to go, we're way over time, uh, but I definitely wanted to hit uh, one new thing just because it's a, it's a really a huge accomplishment um, uh, you know, in, in the in conservative education freedom world um, is that, you know, we really don't have choice here in Texas, despite the left saying, oh, well, we have charter schools and we have, you know, inter-district transfers and all that. And we've done a fantastic video uh, on our YouTube page demonstrating that all those things, frankly, you have two to three percent of all kids who are even eligible, much less actually get to use those kinds of things. One of them, of course, uh, is charters in the way that they say, oh, there's charter schools. Everybody can go to a charter school. Well, approving new charter charter schools in Texas has traditionally, at least for the last decade or so, been very, very difficult. Uh, there's been a big push uh, in that direction to say, you know, charter schools, um, uh, There's no unless there's an absolute reason, you know, some definitive reason why you shouldn't approve it, you know, adding more charter schools and giving kids more options and parents more uh, opportunities uh, is always mostly a good thing. Generally, only a few, you know, less than whatever the number is, 10, 20 percent uh, get approved every year. But this year, four out of the five uh, charter schools uh, that were uh, charter schools that applied um, uh, by the, the State Board of Education to the State Board of Education were approved. Um, and 80 percent approval is just astronomically higher than it's than it's been mm-hmm. uh, the last few years. And so we wanted to highlight that that's a real win for education freedom advocates in the state. Yeah. And I think that especially contrasted to the last cycle, I think it was the opposite. I think it was uh, one got approved and four got rejected. And now we can't look at this in a vacuum. Obviously, the strength of the applications um, matter as well. But I do think that you're you're not wrong in highlighting that this does signal a bit of a uh, a tide shift. And sea change. Yeah. It, 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 and it's not that, you know, now that we have, we're approving more charters that like, oh, everything will get solved. Because I mean, again, the, the, the massive, massive wait list some of these charters have. Yeah. You know, kids and parents, you know, praying to win the, the lottery and get in these schools. You know, that again, the market failure there is not the fact that 
you know, we're offering too many alternatives. That's ble- you know, that's defunding public education because, as you know, you and I know, charter schools are public education. Absolutely, uh, it's not doing that. It's the problem is that there is not enough supply that the individuals who want to exercise this choice are availing themselves of. Will that supply uh, asymmetry get solved with this new? Let's let's say this even becomes a trend. Will mm-hmm. it get solved by this alone? No, it won't. Mm-hmm. Now, will it, will it help some? Yeah, but it won't get mm-hmm. solved. What fundamentally will happen is giving choice to parents to to get the best opportunity for their child. It's not going to defund public education. It's not the uptake is not going to be um, is not going to you know every kid is not going to be somewhere else tomorrow. What you're going to see is most people who do love their public schools and you know say if you go to Keller I can see why you know are going to still kind of say still kind of stay in that environment. But again, those on the fringes are now going to have this Heritage Academy mm-hmm. or, or Hillsdale Academy or whatever it was, mm-hmm. are going to have access to that where that goes. Yeah. They're going to have access to maybe a charter school that really has to do with character development and discipline. I know that there's several uh, in the Austin area that do that. They're going to have options for a different kind of curriculum, a different kind of pedagogy that you're not going to get in the public school. I'm sorry, in the uh, district school. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that that district school doesn't work for some, or all of its students or even some of its students. What that does mean, though, is that, again, this allows the better conforming of the education process to the individual child. 66,000. That number is 66,000 kids are currently on a charter school waiting list. So to your point, four schools is not going to solve that problem anytime soon. Um, but uh, And, and it, it demonstrates that there are 66,000 kids who believe, or at least their parents believe, that they could get a better education than what mm-hmm. they're getting right now at a different school or having a different experience. And so that's why this is so exciting that, that four out of the five schools got approved as opposed to four out of the five schools getting rejected. All right. Jefferson has been waving his hands at us. He has been signaling. He's been throwing skittles at me that we've gone way too long uh, on our show this time. But there was a lot to get to because, again, we're only doing this every two weeks. So, you know, who knows? Um, so anyway, thanks to, to Derek for, for um, indulging all of our uh, content today. Um, and thank you, the listener, the watcher. We really appreciate it. Again, we are doing this every two weeks, so we won't be here next week. And then we're going to start. We're going to look around and see, you know, what are the top issues? What are the hot issues? Try to have some guests in here, maybe to break up just some of the back and forth and uh, listening to Derek and I drone on all the time. Uh, but have some guests in here to talk about some of the bigger issues uh, that Texas are facing. Maybe that'll um, uh, be a little more interesting to you folks uh, soon. So if you have any guest ideas, ideas if you'd like to hear from anybody in particular uh please let us know of course you can catch us on uh social media all right as always uh thank you for watching thank you for listening and do good and risk the consequences we'll see you next time